Good afternoon. I'm going to, uh, I, I have a little sign-in, and the reason for the sign-in, you'll, you'll find out more later. Uh, but all of the notes I'm going to make available to you, uh, but I'll email them to you because I don't have printed copies of them. Uh, but I need to know where to send them. And also, one of the benefits of coming to this meeting is uh, I, I will um, make myself available to meet with you personally if you'd like to just sit, have me sit down with you and either go over something that you have or talk to you about what you might need to do uh, or just give you some, some counsel. Um, so what you're getting is uh, my background is I, I was a pastor the first 15 years of my, my professional life and then I went back to law school and now I've been a lawyer for 30, 30 years. And so uh, you're getting the benefit of, of, of a free meeting with a lawyer. How often do you get that? Um, and it's courtesy of Hume uh, just because you're here. Um, and, and what we'll do, we'll talk about more during the course of the event, what I can do for you. But um, I would encourage you to, to sign up, and if there's something specific you want to talk about, uh, we can talk about that. Um, what I usually do is I, I meet with you, and we just talk about what issues you may have specifically, because we don't have the time nor the privacy to talk about some of these things. Um, some of the things that we end up talking about in these meetings are uh, so sensitive things, because there, a lot of the issues in our families affect how we have to draft some of these documents. One of the things that I'm running into more and more in the last probably 10 years has been that almost 25% of the families that I talk to have in some way been affected by substance abuse, whether it's their, their children or a, another family member, but somehow it's coming into almost every family. Uh, and, and that absolutely, you have to deal with that because you, you can't... Um, you have to structure anything that's going to be going to a, a child who's had that problem in the past, no matter how old they are, and even no matter how long they've been clean and sober. There's, there's, uh, it's, it's just too big of a tendency. We see too many problems. Uh, another one is uh, special needs children, children who have some type of a, um, a handicap or disability. Uh, we, have to, we have to do special planning for that. And then the other one that we don't like to talk about that I see a lot is, is what I call the financially challenged child. And this is the child who may be a, an adult and has still never learned how to make ends meet. They always are spending more than they make and they're coming back to what I call the bank of mom and dad every month to make things balance. Um, and it's amazing how almost every family has one of those. Has, uh, you know, they may have some really responsible kids, but one that just can't put it together. Um, those are the types of things that we end up talking about. How do we plan for those circumstances? And they're also the types of things that um, are really private. And so many times the things we'll talk about are things you may not, you may not talk about with your neighbors your, or your friends, uh, but we have to talk about them to try to say, how can we solve this problem to make this beneficial to our children, but not harm them? Uh, because we can easily harm our kids in the way that we leave things to them. So my name is David Harrison again. Um, I am on staff with Hume full-time and my job consists of not only doing seminars, I do seminars, uh, this month I'll be doing four in a row, four weekends in a row, um, then I'll do more in the fall, uh, but I also then will do meetings. So I end, actually end up being on the road about 20 to 25 weeks a year, and I'll go into specific geographical areas and spend three or four days just meeting with families that have said they want to meet. And the groups, the people come from not only these, but also just people who have been part of Hume. We make it an offer uh, per, pretty much to almost anybody who's part of our Hume family, who's come to different retreats, whatever. Um, so I'm on the road. That's my big job. I, I'm meeting across people's kitchen table or in their living room and just kind of being able to offer um, a combination of advice on legal issues, but from a perspective of... Uh, a biblical perspective, which is really unusual. It's very rare. Uh, as I mentioned this morning, I don't, I don't know of anybody else who's, been, who's putting it together like this. And I think it has come because I have the pastoral background, and that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing. So what we're going to do, um, 
Real quickly, I'm going to ask you if you would just let me know what hot spot or what hot issue it is that caused you to be here instead of either taking a nap or walking around the lake or doing something fun. Um, what, what is the reason you came today? What do you want to know? Yes. I am the executor of my mom's will. She passed in November okay. of last year. So. Okay. Okay. And distribution of, of assets. Yes. Okay. So he's, he's an executor, so you got a big job ahead of you. Okay. Uh, what else? Any, we need to update. We need to update. update. Okay. Updating. Anything else? Yes, sir. Haven't have, have to put it together. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? We're one of those that started one two years ago. Uh huh. We have the draft. Uh huh. sitting there in an envelope. It sits on our counter, and it's a to do, and then it mm -hmm. says don't. It's trust. <laughs> yep, the trust. <laughs> yeah. A, a funny story. I I used to send. A, I have a pr a private practice that I maintain. That I've had for again thirty years probably f have drafted in the neighborhood of six or 7,000 trusts for families over that time. And I used to send out draft copies to everybody because people wanted to see the draft. Well, this is not English. This is a foreign language. Oh, and, and, and it's 100 pages of, of, of documents. And you're kind of looking, it's like trying to read your mortgage documents. <laughs> it's, and you, and it, so it just sits. And at one time, I think I had 10 different draft copies that had been sitting in people's houses for weeks, and they weren't being read. And, um, and I got a call on a Monday morning from um, um, a little old lady, and she said, my husband died over the weekend, and we have our draft sitting on the kitchen table. Um, can I come in and sign it? And the answer is no. <laughs> that, that opportunity was lost. And so I actually st started... Um, I don't send out draft copies anymore unless someone insists upon it. Um, what I do instead, so much of the document is like a lot of legal documents, it's boilerplate. It's gonna be the same for everybody except for these about four different spots where it's gonna talk about you, it's gonna talk about your beneficiaries, and it's gonna talk about who's in charge if you're not able to be in charge. And those areas, you can, you're already giving the lawyer that information, and so he's just writing into the document what you've already told them. So there's not a lot of stuff that you are going to be able to change in it anyway. So what I usually do is I just say, you know, we're going to sit down and we're going to look at it, and I'm going to show you where you've given me this information. If I've misspelled something, I'll go back and correct that. But let's get this document signed so if something happens, we don't have a problem because that's the big issue is we don't want to have... That was unfortunately a big problem for that one lady. Okay, let's go ahead and move on. I'm going to give you a little bit of background first. And what we're going to talk about is I want you to understand what the, what the reason is that we do this. What's the difference between a will and a trust? Um, and then we'll kind of progress there and talk about why we need to do them. So um, first of all, the background, the primary goal is one, we want to reduce or eliminate estate tax. And, and fortunately, right now we're in a good time for that. Uh, we want to avoid probate, and we'll talk about what probate is, and we want to control the distributions, giving it to who we want, when we want, and how we want to do it, and we'll talk about all of those. Okay, tax is the first issue, and right now, as of 2022, we have up to 2 million, excuse me, 12 million per person that you can pass on without having to pay any estate tax. Now, that will change. It's a very partisan issue, meaning that uh, depending upon who's in control, the Democrats or the Republicans, that law can change. Uh, and it's been continuing to go up for years and years and years where the exemption is more and more, which means you, if you don't have a $12 million estate, your family's not going to have to worry about any estate tax. That's the bottom line. That's going to drop, though, if nothing happens. Uh, it's a law that has what's called a sunset provision. It is enforced for a certain number of years, and at the end of those years, it reverts back to what it was at the beginning unless they change it. The last few times it's, it's expired, we had Republicans in, in control, and the Republicans usually keep pushing that number up. Um, the, the Democrats, and I'm not being partisan here, this is just what happens, the Democrats want it back down. They want more tax, and so they reduce the amount that's exempt from tax. 
And so what we're believing will happen is this will sunset in 2025, three years from now, and it will drop back to $5 million per, per person. Now that still means that's a lot of money. You've got to have over $5 million before the first dollar starts being taxed. And it's only every dollar over $5 million that gets taxed. And if you have maybe $7 million, then there's ways to combine to make it so that, so that you and your wife both can combine your exemption and make it $10 million. So there's ways to solve it. It's still not going to be a big problem, and it still won't affect more than maybe 5% of the population. So estate tax is probably not a big problem. 20 years ago, this was $600,000, and most everybody who had a house and anything else was going to go above that amount. So it was a problem 20 years ago. Probate is the other big problem. So estate tax, probate, and control distributions are our goals. Probate is a process of going through the court system. It's not a tax. Uh, probate is controlled by the state in which you live. So we have California probate laws. Our laws tend to be some of the most complex in the nation uh, just because our, we have so much litigation in California and everybody, you know, it's, it, it, that's part of the reason that it's so difficult. Uh, but it's triggered by two things. You've got to own something, meaning it's got to be in your name. And by the way, if you own it jointly, uh, it, that's technically considered to be owned in your name because ultimately, if one of you dies, it'll be in the survivor's name. So joint ownership or community property still means in your name. And then it has to be above a certain value. Now, the values depend on the type of property it is. And these values, you can see they're odd numbers. It's because they're indexed for inflation every year. Uh, they apply a percentage of increase. So real property in California, if it's valued at less than 55000 approximately, then it won't be subject to a probate. Well, what property in California is worth less than $55,000? Uh, I don't even think vacant lands are worth less than that. So... Uh, so you can pretty much guarantee that most real estate uh, is going to be subject to a probate if we don't do something to correct that. Everything else is called personal property, tangible personal property. Uh, tangible personal property could be your bank accounts, your things, your furnishings, your clothing, your cars, all of those types of things. The only thing that is excluded uh, is life insurance and retirement plans because those have beneficiaries and they go directly to the beneficiaries. Um, but everything else, bank accounts, all of those other things are combined and the value cannot exceed 166250 or it triggers a probate. And it, means it, and it goes into a probate. So why do we want to avoid a probate? That's probably the best question to ask. First of all, if we eliminate one of those two, remember ownership in our name, value here. If we eliminate one of those, we're not going to have a probate. Uh, and probate, again, is that simply that process of your estate having to go through the court system. The reason we want to avoid it is, one, it's very costly. It can cost between uh, 4 and 8% of the gross value of everything you own, meaning they don't deduct your mortgage or anything else. It's what the fair market value of everything is. Uh, so it can be very expensive for your family. It's very time-consuming. It's even more so under covid um, you're not going to get it through the system uh, most likely for in less than 12 months and probably more like two years. And in many cases, that means nothing's transferring. The benefits aren't going to anybody. It's just set, sitting there being uh, just waiting until it gets through the system. Uh, and then the last thing is everything becomes public record. Anybody can discover anything about you and your estate and what you had. Uh, they, all they have to do is go down to the court and request copies, and under the Freedom of Informa Information Act, they can get them. So we don't want probate, and the way we eliminate it is we get rid of either ownership or value, and, and the way we do it is we can, be, we can play little tricks. Um, and the tricks, let me show you a little example. I'm going to see if I have any props I can use. No, well, I'll, I'll use this as an example. Uh, let's say that everything I put into my bottle, into the bottle here, uh, is going to be uh, exempt from probate. So how can I do that? Well, first of all, uh, one of the techniques that we use most commonly is called the living trust. And this is where we distinguish between a will and a trust. Everything that we own, if we do nothing with it, 
if we, if we don't create a trust and we don't have any other way of distributing it, everything we own will pass through our will and a will goes through probate because it's distributing things that we own. And that's, again, one of the requirements, ownership. So if we're going to change the ownership, what we have to do is change the title of how we own something. And the way it's done is, okay, we create something like a trust. This is a poor example. Usually I have a, a box up here. Assume this is a box. And in this box, this box is my family trust. I'm going to call it the Harrison Family Trust. And I'm going to take things like the, the title of my house and change it and put it in the box. And so the title of my house will now read David and Judy Harrison as trustees of the Harrison Family Trust. The trust is very similar to a corporation where things can be titled in it, but I who own the corporation or own the trust still have complete control over everything inside my box. Is that making sense? So, so what I can do is I can transfer my bank accounts. I'll title them again. David and Judy Harrison as trustees of the Harrison Family Trust. What's a trustee? A trustee is the only person who has control over those assets. So I can control them. I can use them. I can manage them. I can take them out. I can put them in. I can refinance my house. I can do anything I could do before in my trust the distinction is the title of it says, though I don't technically own it, my trust owns it. Only the things owned in my name go through probate. So at the time that I die, what's owned in my name? Hopefully nothing because I've transferred the ownership title into the name of the trust. So everything that's inside the trust is not owned by me and it's not subject to probate. So it will avoid a probate simply by the titling. A trust then operates just like a will, and a will distributes everything after we die. It says, when I die, you leave, I leave this to this person. The distinction is a trust is usually a bigger, more complex document, and you can be much more specific and actually deal with some of those problem issues that I mentioned about before in a trust where it's usually not done in a will. So the distinction is a will goes through probate, a trust does not. And the simple way it does it is by just transferring the title of the ownership. And again, you compromise nothing. You still have all the full use, management, and enjoyment of everything that you put into your family trust. Does that make sense? It's, and by the way, it's nothing new. It's nothing that's been challenged legally recently. Trust uh, Wills were established in 1208 A.D., but in England by what was called the Statute of Wills, and 10 years later, trust started up. And so they've been around since the 1200s, so it's nothing new that people are saying, oh, it's not going to be challenged. I actually had someone once tell me, oh, I think I have one of the first trusts in California, and I, I said, well, then you've got to be really old because they've been around for 800 years. Okay, so moving on, if we, if we don't have estate taxes because the exemption is so high that we can pass 12 million, we don't have probate, then the last one we want to deal with is control distributions. So what, what that means is we want to be able to say who's going to get what we've left, how they're going to get it, and when they're going to get it. Um, and the techniques that traditionally have been around are what are called outright, staggered, and, and in trust. Outright is just what, we, what everybody used to do. It's where it says, I'm going to leave to my kids one-third, if I have three kids, of my estate, and they're going to get everything, that one-third, and they can get it as soon as they can get it after I die, which generally is going to take... We have to make sure that you have all your bills paid off before we can distribute an estate. So in a simple kind of a trust or simple estate, we can probably say that within three to six months, we can settle everything, and, and all of this can be out. So that means that all the assets get distributed to your kids outright, what we call free of trust, and they have full control to do anything they want to with those assets. Here's the problem with outright. We statistically have been tracking this for probably almost two generations now, and the world is changing, and the things that are changing are, one, the asset amount that we have is growing. It's, it's, it's actually uh, it's changed enormously since World War II, I talked to my dad and I said, what did you receive from your parents? And he laughed and he says, well, my brothers and I split the value of their estate, which was $3,000. 
Well, you look at what the value of the estates are today, and especially with property values and what they've done in the last two years, and, and the average estate that I work with now has a house and maybe some retirement plans, um, so maybe some savings, and, and all together, each of the kids is in store for a couple hundred thousand minimum, it seems like. Um, so what's happened now that we're giving more to the kids, um, our kids tend to be progressively more financially irresponsible. Um, and, and I'm not sure why, but they are less responsible than a previous generation and, less, and they are less responsible than even previous generations. It seems like the generations that were growing up when they didn't have anything are the ones that are most responsible. But the ones that have had everything tend to be less responsible. So what we're seeing statistically is when we leave an outright distribution, meaning no strings attached, you just get it, you do whatever you want to with it the next day, up to 90% of those estates or those distributions are gone within three to five years. This is a national average statistic. 90% of the distributions are gone and it's on things that have no value. Um, and I hear the same thing every time I sit down with someone who I helped distribute from their parents, their estate to them, and they're, they're coming back four or five years later and we're talking and everything's gone. They all say the same thing. I had no idea I was spending it like that because they have this, you have this feeling that I've got this enormous amount of money that I can do things with and you just start doing things. Um, you, you take bigger vacations, you, you, you do more meals out, you do all these little things that are whittling away at it and you're not intending to blow it but you're just spending it. And another thing that's happening is you're changing your lifestyle a little bit. You're getting used to spending more money. And so all of a sudden, you turn around and it's all gone and you've increased your lifestyle and you've got to figure out now how to, cu how to cut back your lifestyle. You have bigger bills, you have all sorts of things. And so it's, it's really similar actually to the graph that we look at when we find lottery winners. The same thing happens within three to five years, everything that they want is gone. And, and it's usually things that don't have value, meaning it's not real estate, it's other things. So this is a big concern for me because I'm not working hard my entire life to leave something to my kids for them to blow through it in three to five years. You know, I'm leaving it so that they can have some advantage and try to do something positive, do something better than I did with what I'm leaving them. So I want to make sure that this doesn't happen. So I personally don't like outright because the times I've seen in all the estates I've managed where the family has positively managed it, managed it positively, are very, very few. Uh, and a quick example, I even had one, one family where the parents were absolutely convinced my kids know every, where every dime they get goes. They're very responsible with money. They would never blow through our estate. We're going to leave it to them outright. Well, I met with the, the kids later, and these were professionals. One of the kids was a lawyer. The other one was a doctor. Uh, and, and I met with the doctor and he was coming to me to have me help him put, prepare his estate. And I was looking through the portfolio of his, his assets and I said, what happened to what your parents left you? And he, he laughed and he says, oh, it's gone. And I said, it's gone. I said, it's been four years. What happened? And he says, well, and I told him, I said, your parents were probably the most adamant I've ever met with who said, you guys would not blow this money. And I told them that they told me you know where every dime's going. And he laughs and he says, I do. I know exactly what it takes to support my lifestyle and this money had no impact on my lifestyle. I could do anything I wanted to with my parents' money and I would still have my lifestyle because I've got it all set. And he said, so we did. We just blew that money. He says, we went to Vegas one weekend as a big family and we just went through tons of money because we could do anything we wanted to. He says, we took a, a Hawaii vacation with the three families and we just went through all this... And I thought, oh my gosh, his, his dad, this is where his dad made this money. His dad was an air, uh, he, he worked for Boeing and he assembled parts on an airplane as a blue collar worker for 40 years. And that's how he made his money. Can you imagine what his dad must be thinking? <laughs> you know, you, you blew all that money. It was crazy. So the, the point is, even those that we may think are really responsible have this tendency if you don't work for it, it's a lot easier to spend it. 
if you didn't have that struggle to build it, then it's a lot easier to have it go. So outright, I don't like. Staggered was a variation that someone created thinking, oh, well, this will solve the problem. If we give it to them in increments, then they may blow it the first time and learn their lesson, and the next time they're going to be more responsible and they won't do it. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't work because behavioral patterns that they've developed of spending money continue without some type of massive intervention. They have to have something that causes them to deal with the situation differently. I've had two lottery winners that I've worked with in my career, and both of them had the same thing. They had the 20-year payout, and they, had, uh, they t- would tell me that they already had two or three years in advance of their installments spent in their minds, and they were just waiting to get the checks. And that's what, it's, what a staggered is. And so it, it, it has not proven to be effective. The last one is in trust. And this is what I've done. I'll tell you what I've done with my family and why I've done it. And what I did was I developed a variation of a, a method because I looked at what was working in the families I worked with and what was not. And I just combined it and kind of created my own hybrid. What it does is it says, when my wife and I die... Um, I've set up some requirements for my kids. Everything goes into, if they're, if they're younger, by the way, if they're younger, we put it into a pot to make sure that all the kids are on equal footing, meaning if we've helped the older ones go to college, we want to make sure the younger ones have the same help, and it doesn't have to come from their, their share. It comes from the family instead, just like the older ones got the benefit. But once they're all on equal fit, footing, probably 23, 24 years old, it goes into the individual shares for the kids. So let's assume we have three kids. It goes into three different shares. They don't get it yet. Um, I have found that there's a, a good time for them to get it and a bad time for them to get it. The bad time is during the time when they're learning to take care of uh, their own selves. They're learning to manage money. They're learning to budget. Um, they're making mistakes and learning from them. And I don't want to short-circuit that learning process while they're young. And this time period usually occurs until they're about 30 or 35, where they're starting to learn how to deal with life themselves. We don't want to short-circuit that learning process by infusing extra capital that they can then blow, and they, because they will then have to go through that learning process after they blow through all the money. And that could be later in life. So instead, I've said... My kids aren't getting a dime until they're, for me, I've said 35, because that's how long I, I, I want them to learn to be independent financially first. During that time, if, the, if needs come up that I would have helped them with, my successor, in, in, in a trust, it's called a trustee, rather than under a will, which used to be an executor, my trustee will step into my shoes and do what I would have done. If there's a need for health, for education, <clears throat> for maintenance, for support, anything that they might need, my trustee will step into my shoes, and if I would have done it, they will do it. So this would pay for weddings, pay for uh, if I would have given them a down payment to help them with a house, things like that. Whatever we need, they will do, but they're not giving the child complete control. Does that make sense so far? Then my child at 35 will have control. But I also have created a system where I want them to have control, but I want them to also learn how to manage properly something that they didn't work for. So I put in some requirements. And the first one is, I am absolutely convinced that most people blow through money because they haven't learned how to manage money. So I am requiring my kids to go through a financial training program before they get their money. Um, most, there's a bunch of them out there. The best ones I like, uh, Dave Ramsey has one called Financial Peace University. Uh, Crown Ministries has one that's a very Christian-oriented program called Money Life, I think it's called now. Um, these are 10-week programs. They can get them on CDs. They can do it online. Uh, 10 hours of, of education, and it fills in gaps that they may not have already learned. It talks about budgeting, all the things they need to know to prepare them for dealing with what is going to be most likely the greatest lump sum they're ever going to get in their lifetime. So I, I require them to do this. And, and the smart ones are going to do it before that magic 35th birthday so that they'll be ready to be able to be prepared to take it. By the way, some of my kids I've already, uh, as a former pastor, I've, I've had the privilege of marrying three of my kids, performing the ceremony. 
and in pre-counseling, pre-marriage counseling, I required them to go through these, pro- these pro- programs, and so they've already done it, and, and it really works. They're, ver- they're very well managed right now, and, they, and I actually told them they would have to go through the program again before they get their inheritance, and they said, oh, good, then we get to fill in some gaps of things that we're weak on or we've forgotten. So it's taught them some maturity. So they have this training requirement. They do that, and then... The other requirement is, I said, I want you to work with an advisor, someone who's going to be able to help you, that you're going to be able to talk to and ask questions uh, and run ideas by. And the reason for this is, not only is it a strong biblical concept that there's wisdom in a multitude of advisors and counselors, uh, but we found that it really does help them make wise decisions. So my kid is going to have to find someone and appoint someone who is going to be their advisor. They can pick anybody they want. I can't pick them. I don't know who's going to be alive or who's around, who's in their lives. Uh, but they can pick this person. I can tell them what the person must look like, though. So I've given them two criteria for their advisor. One is I want it to be a Bible-believing Christian because that is what I am, and I want it to be someone who has the same worldview I do. So I can do that. Um, one of my kids... Um, pushed back a little bit when he heard that. And he says, Dad, that's discriminatory. Why would you have me have to do that? And I said, well, Ben, actually you don't. If you don't want to get your inheritance, you don't have to do that. (laughs) But I get to make the rules because this is my money. And so that's my rule. And he says, oh, no, I wasn't going to not do it. I just was wondering. And I said, yeah, (laughs) of course. Uh, So that's the first requirement. The second requirement is I want someone who has at least some degree of financial experience because I want them not to be just their best friend who's going to say, oh, sure, let's go buy some jet skis for all of our friends, Um, which, by the way, happened in one situation. So so, uh, this could be... I'm not, I'm not being real specific about this. It could be someone who's gone, had a college major or someone who's had some classes in college. But I've even said it could be someone else who's gone through Financial Peace University or one of the training programs. I don't want it to restrict them so much they can't find someone that they can work with. Uh, my goal is just to... What I'm trying to do is I'm creating speed bumps. Speed bumps to slow them down, to cause them to think about what they're doing before they do it. I'm not trying to keep it from them. I'm trying to make them think through. So if they have to talk to someone before they take money out, it slows them down and causes them to think and to try to articulate a reason for why they want to use this money. They can do anything they want to with money they make, but with this money, I want them to be trying to be intentional about it. So they pick this person. This person then is their counselor. And by the way, I'm giving them, of course, the power to hire and fire. So if they find out that they're not working well with this person and this person's saying no to everything, then that's not the goal. The goal is, again, not to keep them from inheritance. It's trying to keep them, uh, to give them an advantage to be able to talk through something with someone so they can hire someone new. Now, technically, on paper, um, the advisor and my child have an equal say. So theoretically, if the advisor says, that makes no sense at all for you to buy all of your friends a new car, then the advisor can say no, and the child technically can't do it. Now, that seems like a lot of of, of control for your child with their money. But the safety valve is, again, they have the ability to hire and fire. So my oldest son, who I'm probably the most worried about, um, saw, found the loophole, and his, his comment was, well, Dad, if I can hire and fire, what's to keep me from picking someone who would say, yes, you can take everything out tomorrow, and I can take everything out and go do whatever I want to with it? And I said, absolutely nothing. I'm not trying to keep you from your inheritance. I'm trying to provide a structure that if you use it correctly, will make it last longer and allow you to be intentional about it. Um, I said, because the tendency, statistics are against you. 90% of you are going to blow it. So this is trying to help you. So there's ways for them to get around this if they choose to. Um, Not everyone immediately sees that loophole, and I don't ever tell anybody that there's that loophole because I don't want them to immediately go take everything out. Uh, But it's an option. So when I set it up that way, uh, it's called in trust because each child then has their own separate trust that's created out of my trust. 
One of the other benefits that I haven't told the kids about yet is it also creates a, a kind of an invisible shield around their inheritance. Uh, it's what we call asset protection. So if they have it dr go into their, their trust and they, you, they follow the rules, have the advisor, the whole thing, then someone else can't take it away from them because technically they don't own it. They only own what they take out of it. Their little trust owns it. So that means it's not going to be subject to divorces, to bankruptcies, to lawsuits, to judgments, to liens, all the things where someone else can come and take it away from them. And that's invaluable because people will many times say, well, how long do you set it up for? I mean, my kids are going to be 50 or 60 when I die. I don't ever have an end on this because why would I want to limit my child's asset protection at a particular age when they may need it the most? Instead, I let them decide. If they can pull out everything they want to by just picking the right advisor, I let them decide when it's appropriate for them to do that uh, and leave that asset protection in force as long as that trust exists, as long as money is in that trust. The trust will implode once they take the last dollar out of it. Now, is that making sense? So that's what I've done with mine. Yes, sir. Yes. Now, let's say with, if I, um, my wife dies uh -huh. and I have a disability. Right. And in that disability, it could run into complications of, complications of how much I'm allowed to have. Right. Because of my disability. Mm -hmm. Now, does the trust help protect that? Right. Per year that I might be in a safe zone. Right. Um, what you're talking about is, is w w when we structure trust for children who we know have special needs and have challenges, um, they have to be very specific trusts, and they're what are called special needs trusts. Um, there's very strict guidelines of, of how they're structured and what money can be used for and all of that. And unless we provided uh, instructions for that trust to be set up that way, then the ones that I'm talking about here don't work. And the problem that we're running into, and this is why we need to do this with any, child, any child who either has a disability or possibly could have a disability. In the trust I draft, I draft in contingency language that says, at the time of both of my deaths, my wife and my deaths, if our successor observes that my child could possibly in the near future have the need for this special needs trust, they have the power to make it, to draft it, and the share going to that child will go through the special needs trust. And the reason why is because uh, if you're getting government benefits, uh, certain government benefits, you can only have a certain amount of money in the bank. And that money can be very limited. In some cases, it's as low as $3,000 at any one time. Anything more than that, and it disqualifies you from getting those benefits. And these benefits, we're talking about replacement of income and potential health care. Uh, they're far greater over the lifetime of a disabled child than we could ever leave the money for. So we don't want to disqualify them from receiving these benefits. But if they all of a sudden are challenged or disabled and they have an inheritance come in and it goes into their bank, it will immediately disqualify them from aid they're already receiving. Not only will it disqualify them and put them now on the, where they're having to pay all their own expenses, they will start getting a bill from Department of, of Health and Human Resources and other places, wherever the aid came from, and this bill will be for aid that's already been given to them. They'll have to repay and so their inheritance could be absorbed just, just like that by having to repay for the aid they've already received. So it's an extremely important that we draft language into our trust that at least provides contingencies for that. In your scenario, if the child, uh, 10 years down the road, which happens sometimes, disabilities can come because of an accident. And, and so if this happens 10 years down the road after they've already had 10 years of receiving their benefits, there's probably nothing that you can do. Um, they would have to spend down their assets. There are techniques, though, 
Um, there are experts in this field that can show them how to try to spend it down but still have some benefit of it too. Um, but it would take some very strategic planning at that time. So the, the, the point is we can do it before the event of giving them the money occurs. But once we've given them the money, if they become disabled after that, then they're going to have to have someone help them find a way to strategically replan. Yes, sir. Okay. Does that protect me from does having my assets in that trust protect me from or again her from having to like through Medicare or whatever? Right. Yeah, and it, be, and it would be Medi-Cal that would want the reimbursement. So that's that's the one you have to watch for. Um, uh, the answer is a living trust of the normal family trust do not provide any protection for that. So if that's a concern, if Medi-Cal benefits are potentially in the horizon, um, then you need to meet with a specialist beforehand because what many times they will do, there's time frames in which you can make some changes. And one of the techniques is that the spouse who's ill can gift their share of the, of the estate, their community property share to the other spouse so that they become basically indigent and qualify for the government aid. But then you've gotta be really careful about uh, segregating the other, all the assets away from the ill spouse. But it takes a very specific person who knows how to do that. Um, and so, yeah, you'd want to do that. It's, it's beyond the scope a little bit of what we're talking about, but it can be done. Um, okay, I'm going to move on real quickly. A couple, couple, couple of things else that I wanted to make sure we cover. Uh, we always run out of time. Uh, I'm going to move forward on some of these here because um, we've actually talked about them. These are the, spe the special planning issues that I'm running into with uh, kids who are financially disabled, uh, kids who are, have substance abuse issues. It all takes some very special, special planning. Um, some of the big obstacles, one of the biggest ones is we are acquiring most of our assets today in uh, our retirement accounts. I don't know if you have 403Bs, um, but th this is where a lot of assets are being accumulated. Uh, 401Ks, 403Bs, IRAs, different things like that. And these are tax time bombs because they're being passed on down to the kids. And when the kids get them, the tax never goes away. The, the tax just becomes their burden. And uh, thanks to, um, it was actually, and I, I, again, I'm not trying to be political, but this was his, his bill that he sponsored. Bernie Sanders sponsored a bill two years ago that requires that your children have to take all the assets out of your 401k, 403b, whatever the number is that you have, they have to take all the assets out within 10 years of your death. And what that means is they used to have their lifetime to take them out. And as you know, when you start taking out those benefits, every time you take them out, you're taxed on some of it. Well, if you, com if you compress the time frame in which you have to take them, that means they've got to take out more at once, more is being taxed, and, and, and the bottom line is, in most cases, if it's an IRA that's distributing a couple hundred thousand dollars to each individual child, they're going to lose perhaps 45% of it, depending upon what state they're in, to tax. So there are ways to, to, to get around that and structure it. And if it's a problem that you have, then that would be a good reason for you to say, David, come and talk to me about it. Um, because there are ways to solve that problem and to do some other things. Uh, we don't need to talk about that. Um, okay, this is, a, this is the thing I talked about today where uh, the most important thing to me is that um, most everybody is going to get documents. In fact, I don't know of more than a handful of attorneys um, that don't use the same software programs. There are about five programs out there we use, um, and it gives us freedom to be able to, to customize. But for the most part, the language that we use has been court tested and we don't go outside that language. We don't create new language every time we, we draft a document, just like your mortgage payments, your mortgage agreements, your loan docs don't do that. Uh, so we're going to have very standardized language, uh, but there are things that we can do to reflect our faith in this that are very important. And one of them I mentioned today was... Um, what my great-great-great-grandfather had done. He had actually made his personal testimony part of his documents. 
Uh, we don't necessarily do that in the legal documents today, but I've created a form that I'd be happy to email to you. Uh, in fact, I'll offer it. I'll go ahead and anybody who said, if you want to, you can check the box again later if you want to write something on there. But if you want a copy of the slides and if you want a copy of this form I'm going to mention, uh, just mention that and I'll email it to you. I created a document that's, um, that's called the Legacy Letter. And what this letter is, is an opportunity for us to write the types of things that I talked about. If you, uh, I have written one of these to each of my kids, so they will open it in a sealed envelope, handwritten to them. This is just what I did, because uh, I want it to be meaningful. And in this letter, I have given my testimony, first of all, because I, want, I, I know my kids know my testimony. But I don't know that my great-grandkids who may see this document have heard that or my great-great-grandkids. So I want this document to be something that's going to be held and, and passed down generationally. So I'm, I'm saying things to my kids that maybe they know. I'm telling them about my faith. I'm telling them why I made decisions that I did that affected them during their lifetime. You know, where we lived, why, what I chose different jobs, all sorts of things. And then I talk to them about them. And in this letter, I'm, I'm talking to them about, th this is what I appreciate about you. These are the gifts I believe God's given you. This is what I want to encourage. And, and it's a time for you, the last chance you're ever going to get it, to talk to those kids. And, and you're going to tell them things that you want to do to encourage them. But you're also going to, you, know, you, you don't want to use it as a time to say, I told you you shouldn't marry that woman. Um, you know. <laughs> This is positive. It's a thing that's going to last, and you want to try to say things in that document uh, that are meaningful. I, I did something with my kids um, when they hit strategic ages. So from 8, 12, and 16, I would take each child away alone on their birthday that year um, for a weekend away, and they got to choose what they wanted to do. You know, one of them wanted to go down to San Diego and go to the zoo. So that's what we did. We spent the night in a motel. We had dinners out. And it was just a fun time, just that child and myself. In my letter, I talk about those times. And I said, do you remember this? Do you remember when we did this? So the purpose of the letter is to try to um, build up your kids and be able to say things that we normally never get to say. Um, you, you, you always... When, when someone passes, one of the things that you many times reflect on is, boy, I wish I had told them this. <laughs> this is the time to do that. And, and so these letters can, can be tremendously meaningful. I've done it for about 20 years in my law practice, and I've seen hundreds of kids open their letters. Tremendously meaningful thing. The money's going to be gone in 10 years, but these letters become heirlooms. You know, they're the personal letter from mom. So anyway, I'll give you the form. Sorry, it's, it's, a, it's a really neat thing. Um, but that's one way that we can do it to reflect our faith. Uh, another thing that we can do, and I'm not here to tell you to do this. I'm just telling you that this is a way that reflects our faith. Um, I, I used to work uh, prior to coming to Hume. I was the senior executive director for gift planning with World Vision. Huge organization. And one of the things that I did was take families overseas to see the work that we were doing. And most of the work that World Vision is doing is in very poor countries. So we'd go to Africa, we'd go to places where, where you know, literally people, we would watch, we'd watch environments where people were dying of disease and famine and all of this. And I can remember seeing one year, um, I was there and I saw this in a Christian village in Africa, uh, this poor little baby was dying in his mother's arms of starvation. And it just bugged me. And I remember coming back on the plane, and we had a 20-hour flight back. And I kept thinking about that. And, I, and the question I had for God was, why was I born where I have, was born to have everything that I have and have all the advantages instead of being born as that child? And one of the answers I came up with as I reflected on what I do is God has not blessed us simply for the purpose of perpetuating wealth to our children, which is what almost everybody does. When I sit down and I say, where do you want whatever you have left to go after you die? You know what the normal answer is? Well, let's just split it up amongst the kids. And I guess my challenge here, if, if we're going to reflect our faith in our documents, Maybe we need to realize if this is really God's money, maybe it shouldn't all go to the kids. 
I can tell you statistically that's probably not healthy for the kids. Um, they are going to go through it, and in many cases, it's a witness to the family to be able to say, you know what, we've carved off this amount of money that we're going to have that's going to go to God's work because we believe that that's important and we believe that God didn't bless us with all of this simply just to give it to you because our kids are already have a, have a hand up, a leg up above almost every other place in the world. Um, so that's something I just challenge you to pray about. It's your decision. You can decide what you want to do. You can decide how much. Uh, I recently have had some occasions where I've talked with some families and, and an interesting philosophy I've come up with from some people is, is they've said, well, you know what? We've, we've said for years and years and years, we believe this is God's money. He's just entrusted it to us as stewards to manage it during our lifetime. And if we really believe that, we've already done what the Bible calls an inheritance because an inheritance biblically was helping the next generation have a means to making a living. It was providing either education in our case where we helped our kids have, a, have tools to get a job or back in biblical times it was passing on the family ranch or the family business or something. That, the, but the purpose was not to just pass massive amounts of wealth to people. It was to provide them with a means to taking care of themselves. And quite frankly, we've already done that. And if we live our life expectancy, our kids are going to be 65 to 70 anyway. So are they really going to need this inheritance? So my challenge is, and what, this, what these families have said is, they've decided, in fact, one of, the, one of the guys who said the same thing is, remember James Dobson from Focus on the Family? This is his philosophy. He says, during my lifetime, I have done everything I could to help my kids. I've helped them get educations. I've helped them buy houses. I've helped them do all this. And he says, I have fulfilled my obligation to my kids. And if I have something left over at the time that I die, this is God's money. And so he says, I'm leaving this to God's work. And he says, and my kids know that. And they're not expecting that. But unfortunately, one of the expectations that our kids have is that we're going to get this inheritance and we're going to become, we're going to get wealthy. We're going to have this money. I have a good friend, one of my best friends, who all during his lifetime was not saving for retirement. And as he approached retirement, his philosophy was, well, when I retire, my dad, he has a few million dollars and I'm going to get some of that and that's my retirement. And then his, his, his mom died, his dad remarried, and when his dad died, all the money went to her and her family and he got nothing. And so his great retirement plan didn't work so well. <laughs> And, and, I, and I was, you know, talking to him about this, and I said, well, you know, we, we got to be careful what, what our expectations are. So our kids expect it. So you can't do something like redirect all of your inheritance or a big portion of it, uh, of your estate, to places other than your kids unless you've talked it through with them and let them know, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. They may not like it, that, but that's not, you know, that, that I would rather, quite frankly, um, disappoint my kids and disappoint the Lord. And, and the Lord has already told us that we're going to be accountable for our time, treasure, and talent. So he's going to say, what did you do with all this? You left it to kids who are just using it to go out and go on vacations when they could have been used for my work? Just a thought, something to think about. Last thing I want to mention, and we've gone off track, but again, you can get, tra you can get copies of this. Um, one of the most important parts of the documents that you prepare today or that you prepare when you're putting these things together uh, is what are called powers of attorney. And powers of attorney are documents that allow someone else to step into your shoes legally upon two types of things um, and represent you. One is over medical decisions and the other is over finance. So for instance, if you become disabled or incapacitated, even briefly, the powers of attorney allow someone you appoint to be able to step in your shoes and pay your bills and take care of finances and all of those things. Very important. Also gives you the power, this one, to uh, represent you. So if you need, someone needs to get on the phone with the insurance company or the IRS or anybody, that's what this one document does. Very important to have that up to date. Picking the people you want. Normally spouses have each other as the first person and then it goes down line from there. The other one is healthcare. And this is probably the single most important document for you to have and have updated today. 
And the reason is of what, because of a little law that was passed in 1996 called HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And what it does is it limits who has access to any information about you. Um, and there are fines in this document for violators of that law who release your information without your permission. So a quick little story, I have, uh, I have six boys and one girl, one daughter. Our daughter is right in the middle of the, of the six of the, of the boys, and when she was 19, she was dating a guy that we now affectionately call the jerk. Um, <laughs> because they were on a double date, he was driving and he was drinking. And, and he decided at midnight to see how fast his parents' car would go. So down by our house, he took this straightaway that's about two miles long that ends up in almost a 45 degree turn. And there was, uh, uh, it was midnight and a, a, a police officer was parked with his lights off in a strip center, watching for red light violators at this intersection. And he says, I heard and saw him take off. And by the time I turned around and got behind him, he says, I could barely see his taillights. He was so far ahead of me. Well, he gets down there and he doesn't make the turn. In fact, the accident reconstructionists say he was probably doing about 112 when he went through a street light and launched the car. And fortunately, all the kids ended up okay, but the car uh, went into a vacant parking lot, which was a blessing, uh, a train parking lot at midnight, had no cars in it, and it rolled, they think, 15 to 18 times before it came to rest upside down. And those of you that are firefighters, you know they had to cut them out of the car and then they airlifted them to the hospital. So we get that call that no parent wants. And so we, we went to the hospital about two in the morning. And the struggle was we get there and the clerk, of course, all they want from us is our insurance information. So we pass all the papers over and, and then the observant clerk says, okay, your daughter turned 19 on April 5th. Do you have her health care directive so we can talk to you? Oh. I do this for a living and I didn't even think, that, think of that because this was my baby. So she said, well, we can't tell you anything. You have to take a seat in the lobby. So all four couples sat there all night long. And we couldn't hear a thing about, they couldn't talk to us. All we could talk to were the cops that were there telling us how bad the accident was. So it was just torture. Well, finally about six o'clock in the morning, my daughter wakes up, she had just fallen asleep. And she says, where are my parents? Haven't they come yet? And the time that she's able to verbally say, I want someone in, it releases the privacy. And, she, and so we were able to go back there and, and find out what was going on. Now, had she not been that well, it would have been a big problem. Um, I've had situations where this has now happened. This happened almost 15 years ago. I've had situations since where it wasn't as good of an outcome and the parents have actually had to go to court and get a court order to be able to talk to the doctors to be able to interact on the behalf of their child. And it's, again, a privacy thing. And the only thing that would have solved it would have been this paper that says, Lindsay says that, that her parents can be talked to about her medical condition and that she's appointing us as her decision makers. So what I did from that point forward is I had three younger boys that were coming along after her. And so every time there was an 18th birthday when they become legal adults, they would blow out their candles and I would stick a healthcare directive <laughs> under their noses and I'd say, you're a legal adult, sign this document. And so they did. But now what I do is I carry in my car those people that are still part, that are not, you know, all my kids are grown and out now, but my wife's... Um, used to carry my dad's with me. This, their healthcare directives are in envelopes in my glove box of my car right out here. So if I get a call this afternoon that my wife's been rushed to the hospital, I don't have to go home and rummage through my files and try to find that document. I drive right to the hospital, pull her envelope that has her name on it out of my glove box, walk in there and say, look, here's my name. You can talk to me. What's going on? Extremely important. 
Some hospitals are not as, as, uh, as strict as Others are, and again, the reason part of it is because they're subject to a minimum $40,000 per violation fine if they're caught giving out information without this document. So it's very important. Yes? If you, if you have an existing living trust, are those typically written, are those typically in the living trust? I mean, there's so many... Yeah, yeah, there, there, are, there are probably, uh, all together, there's six to seven documents that are part of the living trust. The living trust is a package of documents. The trust is one of those documents. These should be in, in them, but they're not in everyone. It depends on who did your document. You do have to look for it, and the title should be uh, advance, not with a D, advance healthcare directive. Okay. Um, if, if the documents were prepared prior to about 2005, you won't have them. Yeah. I, um, I yeah, so that, that's very important. So anyway, that's, that's one of the last things I want to mention is that no matter what you do, uh, you need to make sure you do that. If, if, when do you update a real quick thing? Um, you, you really need to have things reviewed probably every five years or so because there's enough changes in the law today that you want to make sure you don't get caught with something where your kids have to deal with a situation or are subject to attacks that you could have avoided, uh, something like that. Plus, the powers of attorney are state-driven, and so the state legislators in each state, like in California, are constantly micking with the language. And so every time I update a person's trust, I always update the powers of attorney because they've changed slightly. So about every five years, you want to look at it. Um, I also strongly discourage you, and again, I have a vested interest. I'll say it up front. I'm an attorney. I make money from doing these things, but I can tell you that I've had to take to court probably a dozen or more legal zoom or other uh, what we call trust in a box where you've done it online or done it through a program or something because in california the laws are so complex it's almost impossible for you to figure it out yourself without having someone who knows what they're talking about so i just encourage you to be really really careful because that's um uh, it's a it's a potential time bomb uh, they're meant probably for situations that are much more simplistic than we have in California with community property law and all the other things that affect it. So uh, just be very careful. Any other questions, final questions? We're out of time. I don't want to keep you. Your, you have your nap or your shake or whatever going. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, in the fact that something happened to me and my wife and all of a sudden I have a say with personal property in it. Safe deposit. Safe deposit box. And you're talking about your trust or your that those so documents. Personal property in, in a safe. Oh, okay, personal property. Yeah, um, we've had a lot of problems in the last few years with safe deposit boxes, um, and banks are really, really particular about how. The wording is drafted and whether you're both alive and who's on there and all of that. And, and so the, the, the number of times we've had to wait six to 12 months to get into a safe deposit box, um, it, 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 it's a lot. And so my personal feeling is these documents uh, in California, particularly the documents, if you're talking about securing the documents that you have, um, copies are as good as originals. And so the originals are not so... And you don't have to be so intent about protecting them. You want to put them in a safe place, but copies are as good as originals. As far as your personal property, um, if it's something you want someone to get to quickly, uh, I would suggest you just have a home safe that you find a way to, you know, I have one that I've secured to my floor that people can't carry out. Uh, you know, um, if, it's, if it's your personal effects, uh, the, the only, only thing that maybe, be, if you have a lot, a lot of money that you're trying to protect or assets, you know, gold or whatever, maybe you need to think of a different alternative, but for the average person, I, I kind of think safe deposit boxes are on their way out because uh, the banks are just making it very difficult for the survivors to, to get to them. Many times we have to get court orders in order to, the, to actually let this next generation get into them because of the way that they're titled. Like, uh, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not sure. combination of the safe, let's say something happened to me and my wife. Yeah. And I don't really feel comfortable right now giving it to my 
Right. And at, you know, all of a sudden now, they're going to, we're going to be passed away. Yeah. No one's going to have a conversation Well, you're going to pick what are called successor trustees who are the people who are going to step into your shoes after you're gone to manage your affairs. Um, I personally try to move away. I discourage you from using um, your children unless it's a very um, unique situation. And and, and that means that you maybe only have one child or, or, or something. And the reason why is uh, in almost every case when children are named, um, there's friction that's created when one child is in charge and the others are not. And, and, and I, I have seen so many instances where I'm not sure if the kids will ever talk to each other again because they got so upset with the one or the other because of what's happened with the estate. So I, don't, I have personally decided I am not having my children involved in that. They're going to be the beneficiaries. They're going to get everything, but someone else is in charge. If they get mad at that someone else, that's fine. They're not getting mad at their sibling. Um, so if you pick someone that's your successor trustee, your successor trustee, you should you find someone you can trust with that type of information, the combination to your safe. Um, and and I, I've given my successor trustee a copy of all of my documents so that if something happens to us, he immediately knows what he can do to, to do this. And where did I find these people? Uh, my successors come from uh, I've had small men's Bible study groups that I've been part of, one of them for 29 years. And I know these guys like my brothers. I trust them more than I trust anybody. And so these are men that I've chosen to be part of what my uh, success plan is, succession plan is. Uh, I also have someone that's a little bit younger that I've met, that I've developed a relationship with, that I trust. Um, and it's also, again, just happens to be someone from my church. Um, but that's what you have to do. You have to pick these people that you know and you can trust. And that's the only answer I can give you. Our, our financial planner suggested, because we went through that with siblings and stuff, and he suggested, what was it? That um, they, they have a person through yeah. there that you can use. A professional. And, and you don't pick that person right now because you don't know when you're going right. to die. Right. So he says, you know, in 40 years, it may be this person, but they don't know you. They're just doing their job. They're doing their job. Yeah. So, so that, and that's an option. It's what, what's called a professional fiduciary, someone who's a professional trustee. And most of the big brokerage houses do have their own trust departments where they have these people already on staff. The only downside to that is, is they're going to get a percentage of, of what you have. Uh, many times the percentage for management is one to 2%. Um, and, and if you have someone who's uh, not in that profession, then they aren't going to charge that much. Uh, another option that's a little bit cheaper too is private fiduciaries who, who worked and, and cut their teeth under the big organizations, but now are independent. And there's hundreds of those around. In fact, there's an organization of Christian professional fiduciaries, and you can look them up and Google them and find, the, find information. And those people uh, charge a little bit less. They charge by the hour um, because they don't have the same overhead that the big institutions have. Uh, the institutions also want to manage all of your money. So many times at the time of your death, they'll move anything that wasn't with them under their umbrella so that they are getting management fees and they're getting fees for being trustee. So I, I've, I, I, you just have to be careful. It's, it sounds great, but there's ways to do the same thing without having to lose so much of the estate. Okay, we've gone way over. I apologize for that. Thank you so much for your time. Um, if, if you have specific questions and you want to meet, um, anything that you want to help with, just make sure you let me know. Give me your contact information. I need to make sure I know where you live because I do these in geographical pockets. So I may go like to the Bay Area or the Central Coast or something like that, and I'll be there for a few days, and I need to know that's where I'll see you. Okay, thanks.